Section two of the American Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. The American Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. Cinderella's Slippers by Hugh C. Ware. Part two. Four. We had nearly reached the veranda when there was the sound of a motor at the gate, and a red touring car swept into the yard. An elderly, clean-shaven man in a long frock coat and a broad-brimmed felt hat was sharing the front seat with the chauffeur. He sprang to the ground with extended hand as our host stepped forward to greet him. The two exchanged half a dozen low sentences at the side of the machine and then Senator Duffield raised his voice as they approached us. "'Miss Mack, allow me to introduce my colleague, Senator Burroughs.' "'I have heard of you, of course, Miss Mack,' the Senator said genially, raising his broad-brimmed hat with a flourish. "'I am very glad, indeed, that you are able to give us the benefit of your experience in this, uh, unfortunate affair. I presume that it is too early to ask if you have developed a theory?' "'I wonder if you would allow me to reverse the question,' Madeline responded as she took his hand. "'I fear that my detective ability would hardly be of much service to you, eh, Duffield?' Our host smiled faintly as he turned to repeat to a servant Madeline's request for a directory and a messenger. Senator Burroughs folded his arms as his chauffeur circled on towards the garage. There was an odd suggestion of nervousness in the whole group. Or was it fancy? Have you ever given particular study to the legal angle in your cases, Miss Mack? The question came from Senator Burroughs as we ascended the steps. The legal angle? I'm afraid I don't grasp your meaning. The senator's hand moved mechanically towards his cigar case. I am a lawyer, and perhaps I argue unduly from a lawyer's viewpoint. We always work from the question of motive, Miss Mack. A professional detective, I believe or at least the average professional detective, tries to find the criminal first and establish his motive afterwards. Now, in a case such as this, Senator, in a case such as this, Miss Mack, the trained legal mind would delve first for the motive in Mr. Rennick's assassination. And your legal mind, Senator, I presume, has delved for the motive? Has it found it? The Senator turned his unlighted cigar reflectively between his lips. I have not found it. Eliminating the field of sordid passion and insanity, I divide the motives for the murderer under three heads—robbery, jealousy, and revenge. In the present case, I eliminate the first possibility at the outset, there remaining then only the two latter. You are interesting. You forget, however, a fourth motive—the strongest spur to crime in the human mind. Senator Burroughs took his cigar from his mouth. I mean the motive of fear. Madeline sat abruptly, as she swept into the house. When I followed her, Senator Burroughs had walked over to the railing, and stood staring down at the ground below. He had tossed his cigar away. In the room where we had breakfasted, one of the stable boys stood awkwardly awaiting Madeline Mack's orders, while John Dorrance, the valet, was just laying a city directory on the table. Nora, she said as she turned to the boy, Will you kindly look up the list of packing-houses? 
pick out the largest and give me the address she continued as i ran my fingers through the closely typed pages with a growing curiosity i selected a firm whose prestige was advertised in heavy letters madeline's fountain pen scratched a dozen lines across a sheet of her notebook and she thrust it into an envelope and extended it to the stable lad as the youth backed from the room senator duffield appeared at the window i presume it will be possible for me to see mr rennick's body senator madeline mack asked our host bowed also i would like to look at his clothes the suit he was wearing at the time of his death i mean and when i am through i want twenty or thirty minutes alone in his room if mr taylor should arrive before i am through will you kindly let me know i can assure you miss mack that the police have been through mr rennick's apartment with the microscope then there can be no objection to my going through it with mine by the way mr rennick's glasses the pair that was found under his body were packed with his clothes were they not certainly the senator responded I did not accompany Madeline into the darkened room where the corpse of the murdered man was reposing. To my surprise, she rejoined me in less than five minutes. "'What did you find?' I queried as we ascended the stairs. "'A five-inch cut just above the sixth rib.' "'That is what the newspaper said.' "'You are mistaken. They said a three-inch cut. Have you ever tried to plunge a dagger through five inches of human flesh?' "'Certainly not.' "'I have.' Accustomed as I was to Madeline Mack's eccentricities, I stood stock-still and stared into her face. Oh, I am not a murderess. I refer to my dissecting-room experiences. We had reached the upper hall when there was a quick movement at my shoulder, and I saw my companion's hand dart behind my waist. Before I could quite grasp the situation, she had caught my right arm in a grip of steel. For an instant I thought she was trying to force me back down the stairs. Then the force of a hold wrung a low cry of pain from my lips. She released me with a rueful apology. Forgive me, Nora. For a woman I pride myself that I have a strong wrist. Yes, I think you have. Perhaps now you can appreciate what I mean when I say that even I haven't strength enough to inflict a wound that killed Raymond Rennick. Then we must be dealing with an Amazon. Would Cinderella's missing slipper fit an Amazon? She answered dryly. As she finished her sentence, we paused before a closed door, which I rightly surmised led into the room of the murdered secretary. Madeline's hand was on the knob when there was a step behind us, and Senator Duffield joined us with a rough bundle in his hands. Mr. Rennick's clothes, he explained. Madeline nodded. Inspector Taylor left them in my care to hold until the inquest. Madeline flung the door open without comment and led the way inside. Slipping the string from the bundle, she emptied the contents out onto the counterpane of the bed. They comprised the usual warm-weather outfit of a well-dressed man, who evidently avoided the extremes of fashion, and she deftly sorted the articles into small, neat piles. She glanced up with an expression of impatience. I thought you said they were here, Mr. Duffield. What? Mr. Rennick's glasses. Where are they? Senator Duffield fumbled in his pocket. I beg your pardon, Miss Mack. I had overlooked them. He apologized, as he produced a thin paper parcel. Madeline carried it to the window and carefully unwrapped it. You will find the spectacles rather badly damaged, I fear. 
one lens is completely ruined. Madeline placed the broken glasses on the sill and raised the blind to its full height. Then she dropped to her knees and whipped out her microscope. When she arose, her small, black-clad figure was tense with suppressed excitement. A fat oak chiffonier stood in the corner nearest her. Crossing to its side, she rummaged among the articles that littered its surface, opened and closed the top drawer, and stepped back with an expression of annoyance. A writing-table was the next point of her search, with results which I judged to be equally fruitless. She glanced uncertainly from the bed to the three chairs, the only other articles of furniture that the room contained. Then her eyes lighted again, as they rested on the broad, carved mantel that spanned the empty fireplace. It held the usual collection of bric-a-brac of a bachelor's room. At the end farthest from us, however, there was a narrow red case, of which I caught only an indistinct view when Madeline's hand closed over it. She whirled towards us. "'I must ask you to leave me alone now, please.' The senator flushed at the peremptory command. I stepped into the hall, and he followed me, with a shrug. He was closing the door when Madeline raised her voice. "'If Inspector Taylor is below, kindly send him up at once.' "'And what about the inquest, Miss Mack?' "'There will be no inquest. "'Today!' Senator Duffield led the way downstairs, without a word. In the hall below, a ruddy-faced man, with grey hair, a thin grey beard and moustache, and a grey suit, suggesting any army officer in civilian clothes, was awaiting us. I could readily imagine that Inspector Taylor was something of a disciplinarian in the Boston Police Department. Also, relying on Madeline's max estimate, he was one of the three shrewdest detectives on the American continent. Senator Duffield hurried toward him with a suggestion of relief. "'Miss Mack is upstairs, Inspector, and requested me to send you to her the moment you arrived.' Is she in Mr. Rennick's room? The senator nodded. The inspector hesitated as though to ask another question, and then, as though thinking better of it, bowed and turned to the stairs. Inspector Taylor was one of those few policemen who had the honour of being numbered among Madeline Mack's personal friends, and I fancied that he welcomed the news of her arrival. Fletcher Duffield was chatting somewhat aimlessly with Senator Burroughs as we sauntered out into the yard again. None of the ladies of the family were visible. The plain-clothes man was still lounging disconsolately in the vicinity of the gate. There was a sense of unrest in the scene, a vague expectancy. Although no one voiced the suggestion, we might all have been waiting to catch the first clap of distant thunder. As Senator Duffield joined the men, I wandered across to the dining-room window. I fancied the room was deserted, but I was mistaken. As I faced about toward the driveway, a low voice caught my ear from behind the curtains. "'You are Miss Mack's friend, are you not? No, don't turn around, please!' But I had already faced towards the open door. At my elbow was a white-capped maid, with her face almost as white as her cap, whom I remembered to have seen at breakfast. "'Yes, I am Miss Mack's friend. What can I do for you?' "'I have a message for her. Will you see that she gets it?' Certainly. Tell her that I was at the door of Senator Duffield's library the night before the murder. My face must have expressed my bewilderment. For an instant, I fancied the girl was about to run from the room. 
I stepped through the window and put my arm about her shoulders. She smiled faintly. "'I don't know much about the law, and evidence, and that sort of thing, and I am afraid. You will take care of me, won't you?' "'Of course I will, Anna. Your name is Anna, isn't it?' The girl was rapidly recovering her self-possession. "'I thought you ought to know what happened Tuesday night. I was passing the door of the library. It was fairly late, about ten o'clock, I think, when I heard a man's voice inside the room. It was a loud, angry voice, like that of a person in a quarrel. Then I heard a second voice, lower and much calmer.' "'Did you recognize the speaker?' They were Mr. Rennick and Senator Duffield. I caught my breath. You said one of them was angry. Which was it? Oh, it was the Senator, who was very much excited and worked up. Mr. Rennick seemed to be speaking very low. What were they saying, Anna? I tried to make my tones careless and indifferent, but they trembled in spite of myself. I couldn't catch what Mr. Rennick said. The Senator was saying some dreadful things. I remember he cried, "'You swindlers!' And then a bit later, I have evidence that should put you and your thieving crew behind the bars. I think that is all. I was too bewildered to—' A stir on the lawn interrupted the sentence. Madeline Mack and Inspector Taylor had appeared. At the sound of their voices, the girl broke from my arm and darted toward the door. Through the window I heard the inspector's heavy tones, as he announced curtly, I am telephoning the coroner, Senator, that we are not ready for the inquest today. We must postpone it until tomorrow. 5. The balance of the day passed without incidents. In fact, I found the subdued quiet of the Duffield home becoming irksome as evening fell. I saw little of Madeleine Mack. She disappeared shortly after luncheon behind the door of her room, and I did not see her again until the dressing bell rang for dinner. Senator Duffield left for the city with Mr. Burroughs at noon, and his car did not bring him back until dark. The women of the family remained in their apartments during the entire day, nor could I wonder at the fact. A morbid crowd of curious sightseers was massed about the gates almost constantly, and it was necessary to send a call for two additional policemen to keep them back. In spite of the vigilance, frequent groups of newspapermen managed to slip into the grounds, and— after half a dozen experiences, in frantically dodging a battery of cameras, I decided to stick to the shelter of the house. It was a feeling of distinct relief that I heard the door of Madeleine's room open, and her voice calling to me to enter. I found her stretch on a lounge before the window, with a mass of pillows under her head. "'Been asleep?' I asked. "'No. To tell the truth, I've been too busy.' "'What?' in this room? This is the first time I've been here since noon. And where? Nora, don't ask questions. I turned away with a shrug that brought a laugh from the lounge. Madeline rose and shook out her skirts. I sat watching her as she walked across to the mirror and stood patting the great golden masses of her hair. A low tap on the door interrupted her. Dorrance, the valet, stood outside as she opened it, extending an envelope. Madeleine fumbled it as she walked back. She let the envelope flutter to the floor, and I saw that it contained only a blank sheet of paper. She thrust it into her pocket without explanation. 
How would you like a long motor ride, Nora? For business or pleasure? Pleasure. The day's work is finished. I don't know whether you agree with me or not, but I am strongly of the opinion that a whirl out under the elms of Cambridge, and then on to Concord and Lexington, would be delightful in the moonlight. What do you say? The clock was hovering on the verge of midnight, and the household had retired when we returned. Madeline was in singularly cheery spirits. The low refrain which she was humming as the car swung into the grounds, Schubert's serenade, I think it was, ceased only when we stepped onto the veranda and realized that we were entering the house of the dead. I turned off my lights in silence and glanced undecidedly from the bed to the rocker by the window. The cool night breeze beckoned me to the latter, and I drew the chair back a pace and cuddled down among the cushions. The lawn was almost silver under the flood of moonlight, recalling vaguely the sweep of the ocean on a midsummer night. Back and forth along the edge of the gate the figure of a man was pacing like a tired sentinel. It was a plain-clothes officer from headquarters. His figure suggested a state of siege. He might have been surrounded by a skulking enemy. Or was the enemy within, and the sentinel stationed to prevent his escape? I stumbled across to the bed and to sleep, with the question echoing oddly through my brain. When I opened my eyes, the sun was throwing a yellow shaft of light across my bed, but it wasn't the sun that had awakened me. Madeline was standing in the doorway, dressed, with an expression on her face which brought me to my elbow. What has happened now? Burglars. Burglars? I repeated dully. I am going down to the library. Someone is making news for us fast, Nora. When will it be our turn? I dressed in recording-breaking time, with my curiosity whetted by sounds of suppressed excitement, which forced their way into the upper hall. The Duffield home not only was early astir, but was rudely jarred out of its customary routine. When I descended, I found a nervous group of servants clustered about the door of the library. They stood aside to let me pass, with attitudes of uneasiness which I surmised would mean a wholesale series of notices if the strange events in the usual well-regulated household continued. Behind the closed door of the library were Senator Duffield, his son Fletcher, and Madeleine Mack. It was easy to appreciate at a glance the unusual condition of the room. At the right, one of the long windows, partly raised, showed the small round hole of a diamond cutter just over the latch. It was obvious where the clandestine entrance and exit had been obtained. The most noticeable feature of the apartment, however, was a small square safe in the corner, with its heavy lid swinging awkwardly ajar, and the rug below littered with a heap of papers that had evidently been torn from its nearly tabulated series of drawers. The burglarious hands either had been very angry or very much in a hurry. Even a number of unsealed envelopes had been ripped across, as though the pillager had been too impatient to extract their contents in the ordinary manner. To a man of Senator Duffield's methodical habits, it was easy to imagine that the scene had been a severe wrench. Madeline was speaking in her quick, incisive tones as I entered. "'Are you quite sure of that fact, Senator?' she asked sharply as I closed the door and joined the trio. "'Quite sure, Miss Mack.' "'Then nothing is missing. Absolutely nothing. Not a single article, valuable or otherwise.' 
I presume, then, there were articles of more or less value in the safe. There were perhaps four hundred dollars in loose bills in my private cash drawer, and, so far as I know, there is not a dollar gone. How about your papers and memoranda? The senator shook his head. There was nothing of the slightest use to a stranger. As a matter of fact, just two days ago I took pains to destroy the only portfolio of valuable documents in the safe. Madeline stooped thoughtfully over the litter of papers on the rug. You mean three evenings ago, don't you? How on earth, Miss Mack? You refer to the memoranda that you and Mr. Rennick were working on the night before his death, do you not? Of course. And then I saw Senator Duffield was staring at his curt questioner as though he had said something he hadn't meant to. I think you told me once before that the combination of your safe was known only to yourself and Mr. Rennick. You are correct. Then, to your knowledge, you are the only living person who possesses this information at the present time. That is the case. It was a rather intricate combination, and we changed it hardly a month ago. Madeline rose from the safe, glanced reflectively at a huge leather chair, and sank into its depth with a sigh. You say nothing has been stolen, Senator, that a burglar's visit yielded him nothing. For your peace of mind, I would like to agree with you, but I am sorry to inform me that you are mistaken. Surely, Miss Mack, you are hasty. I am confident that I have searched my possessions with the utmost care. Nevertheless, you have been robbed. Senator Duffield glanced down at her small, lithe figure impatiently. Then perhaps you will be good enough to tell me of what my loss consists. I refer to the article for which your secretary was murdered. It was stolen from this room last night. At the point of a dagger pressed against Senator Duffield's shoulder, he could not have bounded forward in greater consternation. His composure was shattered like a pane of glass crumbling. He sprang toward the safe with a cry like a man in sudden fear or agony. Jerking back its door, he plunged his hand into its lower left compartment. When he straightened, he held a long, wax phonograph record. His dismay had vanished in a quick blending of relief and anger, as his eyes swept from the cylinder to the grave figure of Madeleine Mack. I fail to appreciate your joke, Miss Mack. If you call it a joke to frighten a man without cause as you have me. Have you examined the record in your hand, Senator? Fletcher Duffield and I stared at the two. There was a suggestion of tragedy in the scene, as the impatient and irritation gradually faded from the senator's face. "'It is a substitute,' he groaned. "'A substitute. I have been tricked, victimized, robbed!' He stood staring at the wax record, as though it were a heated iron burning into his flesh. Suddenly it slipped from his fingers and was shattered on the floor." But he did not appear to notice the fact as he burst out. Do you realize that you are standing here, inactive while the thief is escaping? I don't know how your wit surprised my secret, and I don't care now, but you are throwing away your chances of stopping the burglar, while he may be putting miles between himself and us. Are you made of ice, woman? Can't you appreciate what this means? In the name of heaven, Miss Mack! The thief will not escape, Mr. Duffield. It seems to me that he has already escaped. Let me assure you, Senator, that your missing property is as secure as though it were locked in your safe at this moment. 
but do you realize that once a hint of its nature is known it will be almost worthless to me better perhaps than you do so well that i pledge myself to return it to your hands within the next half hour senator duffield took three steps forward until he stood so close to madeline that he could have reached over and touched her on the shoulder i am an old man miss mac and the last two days have brought me almost to a collapse if i have appeared unduly sharp i tender you my apologies but do not give me false hopes tell me frankly that you cannot encourage me it will be a kindness you will realize that i cannot blame you senator duffield's imperious attitude was so broken that i could hardly believe it possible that the same man who ruled a great political party almost by the swaying of his fingers was speaking madeline caught his hand with a grasp of assurance i will promise even more she snapped open her watch if you return to this room at nine o'clock not only will i restore your stolen property but i will deliver the murderer of raymond rennick rennick's murderer the senator gasped madeline bowed in this room at nine o'clock i think i was the first to move toward the door fletcher duffield hesitated a moment staring at madeline then he turned and hurried past me down the hall his father followed more slowly as he closed the door i saw madeline standing where we had left her leaning back against her chair and staring at a woman's black slipper it was the one which had been found by raymond rennick's dead body i made my way mechanically toward the dining-room and was surprised to find that the members of the duffield family were already at the table with the exception of madeline it was the same breakfast group as the morning before in another house this attempt to maintain the conventions in the face of tragedy might have seemed incongruous but it was so thoroughly in keeping with the self-contained duffield character that after the first shock i realized it was not at all surprising i fancy that we all breathed a sigh of relief however when the meal was over we were rising from the table when a folded note addressed to the senator was handed to the butler from the hall he glanced through it hurriedly and held up his hand for us to wait this is from miss mac she requests me to have all of the members of the family and those servants who have furnished any evidence in connection with a uh, murder the senator winced as he spoke the word to assemble in the library at nine o'clock i think that we owe it both to ourselves and to her to obey her instructions to the letter perkins will you kindly notify the servants as it happened madeline's audience in the library was increased by two spectators she had not named the tooting of a motor sounded without and a tall figure of senator burroughs met us as we were leaving the dining-room senator duffield took his arm with a glance of relief and explained the situation as he forced him to accompany us six in the library we found for the first time that madeline was not alone engaged in a low conversation with her which ceased as we entered was inspector taylor he had evidently been designated as the spokesman of the occasion is everybody here he asked i think so senator duffield replied there are really only five of the servants who count in the case madeline's eyes flashed over this circle close the door please mr taylor i think you had better lock it also 
There are fourteen persons in this room, she continued, counting, of course, Inspector Taylor, Miss Norica, and myself. We may safely be said to be outside the case. There are then eleven persons here connected in some degree with the tragedy. It is in this list of eleven that I have searched for the murderer. I am happy to tell you that my search has been successful. Senator Duffield was the first to speak. You mean to say, Miss Mack, that the murderer is in this room at the present time? Correct. Then you accuse one of this group of dealing the blow which killed your secretary, and, later, of plundering your safe. Inspector Taylor moved quietly to a post between the two windows. Escape from the room was barred. I darted a stealthy glance around the circle in an effort to surprise a trace of guilt in the faces before me, and was startled to find my neighbours engaged in the same furtive occupation. Of the woman of the family, the senator's wife had compressed her lips as though, as the mistress of the house, she felt the need of maintaining her composure in any situation. Maria was toying with her bracelet, while Beth made no effort to conceal her agitation. Senator Burroughs was studying the pattern of the carpet with a face as inscrutable as a mask. Fletcher Duffield was sitting back in his chair, his hands in his pockets. His father was leaning against the locked room, his eyes flashing from face to face. With the exceptions of Dorrance, the valet, and Perkins, the butler, who I do not think would have been stirred out of their stolidness had the ceiling fallen, the servants were in an utter panic. Two of the maids were plainly bordering on hysterics. Such was the group that faced Madeline in the Duffield library. One of the number was a murderer, whom the next ten minutes were to brand as such. Which was it? Instinctively my eyes turned again toward the three women of the Duffield family, as Madeline walked across to a portiere which screened a corner of the apartment. Jerking it aside, she showed, suspended from a hook in the ceiling, a quarter of fresh wheel. On an adjoining stand was a long, thin-bladed knife, which might have been a dagger, ground to a razor edge. Madeline held it before her as she turned to us. This is the weapon which killed Mr. Rennick. I fancied I heard a gasp as she spoke. Although I whirled almost on the instant, however, I could detect no signs of it in the faces behind me. I propose to conduct a short experiment, which I assure you is absolutely necessary to my chain of reasoning. Madeline continued. You may or may not know that the body of a calf practically offers the same degree of resistance to a knife as the body of a man. Dead flesh, of course, is harder and firmer than living flesh, but I think that, adding the thickness of clothes, we may take it for granted that the quarter of a wheel before us we have a fair substitute for the body of Raymond Rennick. Now watch me closely, please. Drawing back her arm, she plunged her knife into the meat with a force which sent it spinning on its hook. She drew the knife out and examined it reflectively. I have made a cut of only a little more than three and a half inches. The blow which killed Mr. Rennick penetrated at least five inches. Here we encounter a singular striking feature of our case, involving a stratagem which I think I can safely say is the most unique in my experience. To all intents, it was a woman who killed Mr. Rennick. In fact, it has been taken for granted that he met his death at the hand of a female assassin. 
we must dispose of this conclusion at the outset for the simple reason that it was physically impossible for a woman to have dealt the death-blow i chanced to be gazing directly at fletcher duffield as madeline made the statement an expression of such relief flashed into his face that instinctively i turned about and followed the direction of his glance his eyes were fixed on his sister beth madeline deposited a knife on the stand indeed i may say there are few men perhaps not one in ten with a wrist strong enough to have dealt mr rennick's death-blow she went on there is only one such person among the fourteen in this room at the present time again you will recall that the wound was delivered from the rear just as mr rennick faced about in his own defence had he been attacked by a woman he would have heard a rustle of her dress several feet before she possibly could have reached him i think you will recall my demonstration of that fact yesterday morning mr duffield obviously then it is a man whom we must seek if we would find the murderer of your secretary and a man of certain peculiar characteristics two of these i can name now he possessed a wrist developed to an extraordinary degree and he owned feet as small and shapely as a woman's otherwise the stratagem of wearing a woman's slippers and leaving one of them near the scene of the crime to divert suspicion from himself would never have occurred to him again i thought i heard a gasp behind me but its owner escaped me a second time there was a third marked feature among the physical characteristic of the murderer he was near-sighted so much so that it was necessary for him to wear glasses of the kind known technically as a double lens unfortunately for the assassin when his victim fell the latter caught the glasses in his hand and they were broken under his body the murderer may have been thrown into a panic and feared to make the time to recover his spectacles but it was a fatal blunder fortune however might have helped him even then in spite of this fact for those who found the body fell into the natural error of considering the glasses to be the property of the murdered man had it not been for two minor details this impression might never have been contradicted madeline held up a packet of newspaper illustrations several of them i recognized as the pictures of the murdered secretary that she had shown me at the roanoke the others were also photographs of the same man if mr rennick hadn't been fond of having his picture taken the fact that he never wore glasses on the street might not have been noticed none of his pictures not even the snapshots showed a man in spectacles it is true that he possessed a pair and it is here where those who discovered the crime went astray but they were for reading purposes only the kind term a point one hundred and twenty five lengths while those of his assailant were a point two hundred and ten lengths the clinch of the matter i later found mr rennick's own spectacles in his room where he had left them the evening before madeline held up the red leather case she had found on the mantelpiece and tapped it musingly as she gave a slight nod to inspector taylor we have now the following description of the murderer a slenderly built man with an unusual wrist possibly an athlete at one time who possesses a foot capable of squeezing into a woman's shoe and who is handicapped by near-sightedness is there an individual in this room to whom this description applies there was a new glitter in madeline's eyes as she continued through the co-operation of inspector taylor i am enabled to answer this question mr taylor has traced the glasses of the assassin to the optician who gave the prescription for them 
I am not surprised to find that the owner of the spectacles tallies with the owner of these other interesting articles. With the words, she whisked from the stand at her elbow the long, narrow-bladed dagger and a pair of soiled black suede slippers. There was a suggestion of grotesque unreality about it all. It was much as though I had been viewing the denouement of a play from the snug vantage point of an orchestra seat, waiting for the lights to flare up and the curtain to ring down. A shriek ran through my ears, jarring me back to the realization that I was not a spectator, but a part of the play. A figure darted toward the window. It was John Dorrant, the valet. The next instant Inspector Taylor threw himself on the fleeing man's shoulders, and the two went to the floor. "'Can you manage him?' Madeline called. "'Unless he prefers cold steel through his body to cold steel about his wrist,' was the rejoinder. "'I think you may dismiss the other servants, Senator,' Madeline said. "'I wish, however, that a family would remain a few moments.' As the door closed again, she continued, "'I promised you also, Senator, the return of your stolen property. I have the honour to make that promise good.' From her stand, which was rapidly assuming the proportions of a conjurer's table, she produced a round, brown paper parcel. Before I unwrap this, have I your permission to explain its contents? As you will, Miss Mack. Perhaps the most puzzling feature of the tragedy is the motive. It is this parcel which supplies us with the answer. Your secretary, Mr. Duffield, was an exceptional young man. Not only did he repeatedly resist bribery such as comes to few men, but he gave his life for his trust. At any time since this parcel came into his possession, he could have sold it for a fortune. Because he refused to sell it, he was murdered for it. Perhaps every reader of the newspapers is more or less familiar with Senator Duffield's investigations of the ravages of a certain great trust. A few days ago, the Senator came into possession of evidence against the combine of such a drastic nature that he realized it would mean nothing less than the annihilation of the monopoly, imprisonment for the chief officers, and a business sensation such as this country has seldom known. Once the officers of the trust knew of this evidence, however, they would be forearmed in such a manner that its value would be largely destroyed. The evidence was a remarkable piece of detective work. It consisted of a phonographic record of a secret director's meeting, laying bare the inmost depredations of the corporation. Madeline paused as the handcuffed valet showed signs of a renewed struggle. Inspector Taylor, without comment, calmly snapped a second pair of bracelets about his feet. The trust was shrewd enough to appreciate the value of a spy in the Duffield home. Dorrance was engaged for the post, and from what I have learned of his character, he filled it admirably. How he stumbled on Senator Duffield's latest coup is immaterial. The main point is that he tried to bribe Mr. Rennick so persistently to betray his post that the latter threatened to expose him. Partly in the fear that he would carry out his threat, and partly in the hope that he carried memoranda which might lead to the discovery of the evidence that he sought, Dorrance planned and carried out the murder. In the secretary's pocket he discovered the combination of the safe, and made use of it last night. I found a stolen phonograph record this morning behind the register of the furnished pipe in Dorrance's room. I had already found that this was his cachet, containing the dagger which killed Rennick and the second of Cinderella's slippers. The pair was stolen some days ago from the room of Miss Beth Duffield. 
The swirl of the day was finally over. Dorrance had been led to his cell. The coroner's jury had returned its verdict, and all that was mortal of Raymond Rennick had been laid in its last resting-place. Madeline and I had settled ourselves in the homeward-bound Pullman as it rumbled out of the Boston station in the early dusk. "'There are two questions I want to ask,' I said reflectively. Madeline looked up from her newspaper with a yawn. "'Why did John Dorrance bring you back a blank sheet of paper when you dispatched him on your errand?' As a matter of fact, there was nothing else for him to bring back. Mr. Taylor kept in a police headquarters long enough to give me time to carry my search through his room. The message was a blind. And what was the quarrel that the servant girl, Anna, heard in the Duffield library? It wasn't a quarrel, my dear girl. It was the senator preparing the speech with which he intended to launch his evidence against the trust. The senator is in the habit of dictating his speeches to a phonograph. Some of them, I am afraid, are rather fiery. End of Cinderella's Slippers by Hugh C. Ware Part 2 Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway The 6th of October, 2012